Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. And now from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files with your host, David Axelrod. You want to get an argument going in American politics today, a good place to start is on the issue of trade. Uh, it's an issue that's divided both parties. It's an issue that uh, was central to the last presidential campaign. And someone who was deeply invested in that discussion was Michael Froman, uh, who was the United States trade representative under the Obama administration and a central player in the negotiation of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Michael came by the Institute of Politics the other day to talk about where the issue of trade goes from here. And while he was here, we sat down to talk about that, but also his life and career. Michael Froman, an old friend of mine, uh, welcome to the Axe Files and to the Institute of Politics. Great to be here. Uh, uh, interesting time to take up the issue of trade, and we'll <laughs> we'll get to that. But um, I never really had a chance uh, when we worked together because we were in the midst of a financial crisis and a few other things uh, to talk to you about how you got to where uh, we were in your own life. Uh, so tell me about growing up in the Bay Area back in in, in in the day when you were a kid, <laughs> and how that helped formulate where what you would sure. become. Sure. Well, you know, I, I grew up in the Bay Area and uh, took a year. I was going to be a doctor, and I took a year off after high school and traveled around. Well, tell me about your family, though. What your, I guess your dad was in the furniture business? My or? dad was in the furniture business, had a small store uh, in the local town. Uh, I worked there during the summers, moving furniture or dusting furniture. It's my summer job. Uh, he uh, he was an immigrant. He was born in Berlin. He left uh, Berlin in 1936 uh, mm. as a refugee to uh, what was then Palestine. Uh, grew up there until 1950 and came to the U.S. to go to college. Uh, went to Berkeley. Met my mom there. We settled down and uh, they settled down in Marin County, just north of San Francisco. Uh, so he was first generation uh, immigrant, and I think that had a big impact on my life. He was very much involved. Uh, followed history and Middle East politics and the like, and had a big impact uh, on me throughout my life. And you were in, you were active in uh, Jewish issues and in the community when you were a kid. No, that's right. In fact, that that year I took off after high school was to work for a Jewish youth organization. It allowed me to travel all around the country uh, a bit internationally, and that's what really changed my focus from uh, doing something in science to doing something in politics. And so I uh, decided to come east, uh, went to school uh, at Princeton, studied international relations, and kept on going So you were a good path. student, obviously. I guess I did okay. Yes, yeah. And, um, uh, and, and from Princeton, you pursued a, a doctorate. I pursued a doctorate uh, in international relations uh, at Oxford, and then I went to law school, uh, to Harvard Law School. And uh, that's why. I mean, why 
why did you decide to just love school? Well, you know, I, I had planned to be a lawyer or to go to law school anyway. I wasn't sure I'd ever practice, but thought I would go to law school. Why? Uh, you know, I think it was – I was convinced and I, I think in retrospect I, I, uh, I was right that learning a coherent way of thinking – there are lots of different – models or frameworks one can develop in one's life. But the way of a lawyer of working through a problem in a concerted manner, looking at both sides of the issue, having to make arguments uh, on one side of, of the issue and understand the strengths and weaknesses of those arguments, I found to be a very attractive way of organizing my thoughts and something that I used every day, even though I never practiced law. And while you were at Harvard, you had some illustrious classmates uh, not the least of which was Barack Obama. Indeed. I mean, I came to know you as a friend of Barack Obama's right. when he was uh, earlier in his political career, but uh, you worked with him then. We were we were classmates. Uh, we worked on Law Review together. Uh, he, of course, went on to be president of the Law Review. I was just a mere uh, a mere <laughs> editor there. Uh, but if you've uh, if you've ever been at law school or know anything about Law Review, you know you spend an inordinate amount of time late into the nights. Uh, sitting around the table doing uh, work on articles together, and so it gave us an opportunity to get to know and each other. You, uh, what was your observation of him back then? Well, he stood out in everybody's mind uh, immediately. Now, I, I won't say that I thought then he'd be president of the United States. Mm-hmm. Maybe some people did have that kind of foresight. I think we all thought he would go into politics. But whether it was— Why did you, you feel that way? Well, you know, it was a time—this was in the, in the late 80s, uh, early 90s. It was a time on law school campuses when there was a lot of division. Uh, there had been the critical legal studies movement. Uh, it was followed by the rise of the Federalist Society. So there was a lot of sort of right-left divide on law schools. It divided students. It divided faculties. And he was a figure who came into law review uh, determined to try and bridge the differences. And a lot of the attributes that later became obvious as, as a senator, as a candidate for president, as president, you could see even back then in terms of his commitment to try and bridge differences, his, uh, his ability to reach out to people and try and build consensus. And obviously, it was on a much smaller scale over much less consequential yeah, issues. Yeah, with a bunch of probably rigorous thinkers – Oh, that's right. That's right. And people who felt very strongly about their their, uh, their their perspectives. It's interesting because he had come from being a community organizer where he was also trying to bridge differences, right. but with an entirely different uh, group of folks. That's right. Um, did, um, uh, did the um, the fact that he became president of the law review, was it was national news. Was it was it regarded as such on campus? Was it a big thing? It was a big deal. He was the first African-American to be elected in, I think, what was then 104 years of, of, uh, of the history of the Law Review. So it was a big deal on campus. Um, he was a big deal, and not just because of the Law Review. Uh, you know, I, didn't have, I had a few classes with him. He stood out in those classes. When, when he opened his mouth and expressed his view, first of all, he, he did it judiciously. Uh, but when he did, it had an impact and he had a perspective, a more mature perspective in many respects. And he was older than... He was older. He had taken you a few You both off. were uh, older because you'd taken time off That's you right. for different things. But That's right. He had gone to organize and I, I had done my, my doctorate in the meantime. And did you have a 
what was your personal relationship with him like then? You know, it was good. I was not uh, a close buddy. I was not a roommate, as, as some of the uh, press had, had, had sort of reported on. But it was we were we were colleagues on Law Review. We spent a lot of time together. You know, every night at, at ten o'clock, everyone put their work away and broke to have a, a snack or to watch the news and talk about what was going on. Uh, you had the first Gulf War. Uh, that was launched while we were uh, students there together. There was a big debate uh, among uh, among the editors there about what was going on with the in the Middle East. Uh, and I just remember a, a very vibrant, thoughtful discussion that he brought to the table about what was ever going on on TV, what was ever going on on the campus. He went back to Illinois to uh, teach and to practice uh, uh, civil rights law and ultimately to run for office. You went right to Washington. Um, was that your intent to get right in the into the thick of government? Well, I, I first went uh, to Europe and, and went to Brussels, uh, worked for the European uh, Commission. And then my wife and I went to Albania. Oh, that's did right, yes. legal reform and then ended up in, in Washington uh, about, a, about a year later. And that was that was the intent. I was I was very focused on doing uh, government service and and uh, uh, being in the government. And you were uh, a protege of Bob Rubens, uh, who was uh, Bill, uh, ultimately uh, Bill Clinton's Treasury Secretary, head of the uh, NEC uh, before that. He was a he, he loomed large over the economic policy of the '90s, and uh, some on the left uh, were unhappy. Uh, with uh, the approach he took, what what t- what was you guys came to office at a time when there was a a recession um, and had some big fights over tax policy and so on. That's right. Um, what distinguished the Reuben years there with President Clinton? Well, look, I think one of the things he established uh, first as head of the National Economic Council, but then also when he was Treasury Secretary was the importance of having a full debate around the table. And he viewed his role as head of the NEC, not just to express his point of view, but to make sure that alternative opposing points of view were also represented there and that the president had the benefit of differing perspectives there. So oftentimes we'd be, we'd be sitting in meetings and he would be making the actual the opposite argument of what he I knew he believed in just to make sure that it was on the table. And I thought... I learned a lot from that in terms of the importance of a, of a fair and open system. And President Clinton and, and, and President Obama both valued having that kind of debate where they could see all the perspectives being presented to them so that they could make the ultimate decision. So a good way to win an argument is to argue both sides absolutely. of it, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> there you go. The, uh, but, but you know what the, the – you know, there was a great emphasis on balancing the budget. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, you know, great a uh, great emphasis on trade, which we will uh, talk about. It, it was a big dividing line within welfare reform. There was a big dividing line within the the left and the Democratic Party over those policies, and some of there are still reverberations of some of those debates today. I think that's right. I mean, the the Clinton administration came in in the context of a recession put together policies, and, and you're right, it reflected fiscal conservatism, it reflected um, pro-trade perspectives, 
Uh, Although one of them was also a high-end tax cut that was quite quite a row. There. And it led to a very strong recovery in the 1990s, including the creation of 20 million new jobs. Uh, so you're, there was a, a robust debate within the government about this. Uh, there were also quite good results for the outcome. Let me uh, – we'll, 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 there's a lot more to talk about on trade, but on that was really a period in which uh, trade was not only hotly debated, but was um, the establishment of uh, of a global trading structure was uh, really front and center, and the reverberations of that today, and we saw it in the election of Donald Trump, was that a whole lot of People in places like, you know, Galesburg, Illinois, and 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 you know Detroit, and um, all kinds of industrial towns, large and small, uh, saw the offshoring uh, of jobs, and so people identify the decline of the middle class in those communities uh, with trade. Um, is that a is it a fair critique? Well, look, I think most economists will tell you that 80% or more of the effect on jobs is from technology, not from trade. Even then? Uh, well, even then. I mean, you've seen a decline in the percentage of manufacturing workers, for example, in the United States for, for 60 years, long before there was any trade agreement. And, and this is before the WTO existed, before China joined the WTO, uh, before NAFTA was fully implemented. Economies, including not just the U.S. but other major industrialized economies, were going through transition with more and more productivity, more technology introduced into the workplace. The absolute amount of product produced, manufacturing in the United States, continued to go up. In fact, last year we've had the highest amount of manufacturing product produced in the United States ever. You've also ever, had some return jobs. of manufacturing over the last few years as wages elsewhere have begun to catch up. That's right. Over the last five years, you had about 800,000 new manufacturing jobs added. But there has been a, a secular trend of increased production with fewer workers, and that is largely because of, of technology. But back in that day, there were, you know, you could, you could, and in fact, well, this predated, as you point out, uh, some of these agreements. I mean, Obama worked in the shadow of closed steel mills, some of which were shipped overseas. Uh, but a lot of these communities saw a lot of factories close down and move uh, to places where labor was much uh, cheaper. Um, that had to make your job harder in selling trade treaties when it became your job to do so. Well, absolutely. Because I, I think there's a, a tendency to conflate globalization with trade agreements. Globalization has certainly had an impact on the U.S. economy, on jobs, on wages. There's no doubt about that. But globalization is, uh, is a force. It's the effect of the containerization of shipping, which made it easier to have supply chains around the world. Uh, in the services sector, it's the, it's the effect of the spread of broadband, which made it possible to do things in India overnight rather than having workers in the United States. These technological developments very much facilitated the spread of globalization with or without trade agreements. You take steel, for example. We have zero tariffs on steel. We don't have any production on steel in the United States. That's regardless of any trade agreement. And so as we've seen steel mills close, it is because 
Either there's been cheaper labor abroad, it's been easier to ship steel from one country to another, the costs of doing trade have declined. And where we have seen a resurgence of steel production in the U.S., it's because it's been of a more high-tech sort uh, with more automation. And that has shown how the impact of automation has uh, the the impact that automation has had on the on the, on the workplace. Do you look back over the decades that you've been working on this issue and say there are things we should have done, both in terms of how we negotiated these agreements and how we dealt with the impacts of globalization in particularly these industrial industrial communities? Yes, absolutely. Look, I think one of the the, the lessons learned, uh, take NAFTA as an example. Uh, The Clinton administration inherited NAFTA and added labor and environmental side agreements. And the idea behind it was if we're going to be integrated with our neighboring countries, it's important that they not be able to avoid basic labor and environmental protections in order to get a competitive advantage on us. But these side agreements were not particularly strong standards, and they weren't fully enforceable. And as you know, when when Senator Obama was running for president, he called for the renegotiation of NAFTA. Mm -hmm. And he was quite clear on what it meant. And he talked about how labor and environment have to be treated just as seriously as any other issue in a trade negotiation. And that's what we did under his leadership when we negotiated the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which had binding and enforceable, very strong labor obligations in Mexico and Canada, as well as 40% of the global economy. I mean, one of the paradoxes in talking about this issue, though, is the argument that you would hear uh, about uh, in favor of trade agreements in part was that uh, by lifting uh, some uh, countries that uh, were poorer countries, developing countries, that uh, you could create markets for American goods uh, and – create more so- social tranquility. And from a security and strategic standpoint, there were advantages uh, to that. So um, in a sense, there was a concession that you're shipping, you, you may be shipping some opportunity uh, to these other countries um, as part of the deal. Well, look, we are already an open economy, the United States. Our average applied tariff, the tax we put on imports, well, we, we until now at least, <laughs> until now, is one and a half percent. If you take uh, uh, the TPP countries, eighty percent of what we import from TPP countries already comes in duty free. So we're already very open, but we face much bigger barriers abroad. Uh, Vietnam has got a seventy percent tariffs on autos. So if you want to sell autos to Vietnam, Vietnam ninety million people, growing six percent a year. A poor country, but with an emerging middle class. And they want the kinds of things that the U.S. produces. They want our autos. They want our tractors. They want our agricultural products. They want our services. You have faced two choices if they have barriers. You can either close down your auto plant in the United States and move it to Vietnam to serve that market. Or you can keep the auto plant in the United States, tear down barriers to Vietnam, and expand production here and export from here to Vietnam. Our view is that's the right approach to go. You want more production in the United States, more manufacturing in the United States. But since 95% of the world's consumers live outside the United States, we need to do everything we can to remove barriers to those markets and then raise standards in those markets so that they're not competing with us on an unfair and level level playing field. And that's what we tried to do through our trade policy. We talked a little bit earlier before we uh, began recording about um, some of the 
the, about the need for transitional uh, programs to help people in an, econ- an economy that's changing at like warp speed, uh, not just uh, because of trade, but because of uh, automation. Um, but that's never and 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 that's been talked about for twenty years, uh, but it's never really been effectively executed. Why? Well, I actually thought that might be one of the silver linings of the recent campaign, because for the first time you had not just Democrats, but Republicans saying we need to do more for people and for communities that are adversely affected by change. You know, we have a couple of government programs and they are as, as they do what they do, but we need to have a much more holistic view of this in terms of both preparing people with the skills that they're going to need to succeed in a rapidly changing economy and helping those who are adversely affected by change whether that change comes from technology, from immigration, or from trade, to make sure that they can transition to be uh, to, to a successful path as, uh, forward as well. And we don't do a particularly good job of that. You know, I mean, President Obama had several proposals in budget after budget. The issue of uh, transitional help also requires people to make adjustments in their own lives. And what you hear often is people who've spent a lifetime, you know, 20 years working in an industry, 25 years, aren't particularly eager to be told you need to retrain for something entirely different. And particularly if that's something entirely different pays a much lower wage than the thing that they did before. Well, look, that's right. And I I think we need to be looking at how do you help provide skills at every stage in a career? And by the way, it may not always be a federal government program. It can be programs that states run, the localities run, that companies run, that educational institutions that you Although someone has to be the catalyst for that, and presumably the federal government would be that catalyst. Uh, They could be, but there's experimentation going on right now in various states where they are more proactive than we are at the federal level. And by the way, we we can look around the world, too. There are countries out there that do this much better than we do. Germany. Germany on the apprenticeships. Uh, in Scandinavia, there are programs where unions play a more active role in helping with transition. You know, you know Singapore is a, a, a unique city-state situation, but they certainly have a very active program of helping to identify what skills are going to be needed and helping those workers who are in uh, sunsetting industries make that transition. Korea has programs. So there's a lot I think we can learn from both other countries and from the states and figure out what, what can be done at the national level you, as well. Uh, you know, you mentioned unions and the role they can play, but one of the issues that's uh, – one of the things that's evolved, we, we, a third of the country was unionized uh, in the 50s, and today we're looking at under 10 percent uh, – of, of private sector, of the private sector economy being unionized, and you battled the unions uh, over this issue of trade. But it, but it seems like the that the the uh, decline of unions also has been a contributory factor to the pressures on the middle class. And you're now offering them as a kind of as a participant in uh, the retraining and so on. Um, how much? Uh, What's your view of unions and the role that they should play as someone who's tussled with them over this issue? Well, look, we we tussled, but we also spent an enormous effort 
working with them to understand what it is they wanted us to do in the trade agreement to particularly raise labor standards and strengthen workers' rights in other countries. That's a good in and of itself because it's important to underscore the, the dignity of work wherever it's taking place. But it was also a way, very you know, uh, from a U.S. perspective, of leveling the playing field. I mean, if workers in Mexico can now have truly independent unions that can strike, that can collectively bargain uh, in a way that they haven't had before, that's good for Mexican workers, but it's good for American workers. And it's through trade agreements that we try and make those changes. So, you know, my, my, uh, uh, I, I feel like we partnered with the labor unions in many respects. They certainly did not agree with us at the end of the day. They didn't support the end result. They vehemently opposed the TPP to the point where Hillary Clinton, who was a strong supporter of the TPP, walked away from it. And my question always to them is, okay, what then would you have us do? We live in a global world. The global economy is real. Globalization is happening. We compete with low-wage labor right now, whether it's from Mexico or China or Vietnam. If we do nothing but complain, but don't, but not, are not proactive about trying to raise labor standards in those countries, then we've done nothing to help support our workers here in the United States. At least with through TPP, we were able to take major steps forward. And what Vietnam agreed to in labor reform, what Mexico agreed to was a very significant step forward in terms of raising and strengthening workers' rights in those countries. It would have benefited American workers. And instead now, with the absence of TPP, we're going to compete on on an unlevel playing field with workers in other countries who don't have the same kind of labor rights that we have here. Well, you've heard the president, President Trump, invoke the specter of tariffs uh, against uh, companies that would move plants overseas and then try and re-import their products. Um, What's wrong with that theory? Yeah, look, I think there, first of all, there's nothing wrong with the goal of driving more production, more manufacturing to the United States. That certainly was our perspective in the Obama administration, and it's a perspective clearly that President Trump uh, is pursuing as well. The question is how to get it done. By raising tariffs on other countries, I think you run three risks. Retaliation, imitation, and taxation. Retaliation, that if we do something... Good alliteration there, Isn't that good alliteration? Yes. Uh, Retaliation in that if we take action that is clearly illegal under our international obligations, we give license to other countries to raise tariffs or to impose other barriers on our exports, and that hurts our workers. We have 11.5 million workers whose jobs are dependent on exports. And if we give that open license to others to raise barriers to those exports, our workers are the ones who are going to be hurt. Similarly, imitation. If we, if we ignore our international obligations, it makes it much harder for us to prevent other countries like China from also ignoring their international obligations. We've lost the moral high ground. We've given license to other countries just to say, well, if it's good enough for the U.S., it's good enough for us. And again, since 95% of the world's consumers are outside the U.S., 80% of the purchasing power is outside the U.S., we need access to those markets if we're going to support good jobs in the United States. And the third is taxation. Raising tariffs on imports is a tax on the consumers who, who, who consume those imports. Tariffs are a particularly regressive tax. Low-income Americans spend a disproportionate amount of their income on tradable goods, clothing, footwear, food. If you raise tariffs, you are imposing a tax on the parts of American 
society that can least afford it. It's kind of a circular problem, though, because if you don't make a livable wage, um, it's hard to buy products anyway. You know, through our successive trade liberalization over the last 70 years since the Second World War, it's estimated we've added $13,000 to the uh, annual income of every American family on average. Reversing that is a regressive tax. I want to talk more about this issue when we get to where we are today uh, and particularly where we are in the world um, in this, with this new paradigm of, of, of President Trump. But I want to return to your uh, narrative. You left government, you followed uh, Bob Rubin to Citigroup, and you spent uh, uh, a decade in, in uh, various positions, high uh, positions there. Um, you, um, and you, you saw the, the rise of you know, a big bull wave on uh, Wall Street, and you, you also saw a, a crash uh, there, what what happened from you as someone who's inside? Did you sense? Did you feel uh, that uh, things were um, were surging, sort of out of control? I mean, did you have fears about where uh, Wall Street was going? Yeah, you know, I, I think there are lots of different parts of the financial sector, and some parts were closer to those excesses than others. Um, you know, when I was, my last job at Citigroup was um, uh, investing in infrastructure uh, in, uh, and, or in the United States and, and around the world. It was quite different from insulated from mortgage-backed mm-hmm. securities or, or things of that sort. So I think one certainly follows it and has a feeling for, well, are the markets pricing risk um, adequately or, or not? Um, but if you're in a different part of the financial sector, it's a little hard to have a, a textured understanding or an appreciation of, of what's going on. You left um, shortly after that because you joined the administration that then had to deal with the, uh, the crisis. When Lehman Brothers collapsed, what was the sense uh, in, within the community of where things were uh, at that moment? What were your fears? What were your concerns? I think I think uh, uh, everyone was trying to digest what it meant for an institution like that to collapse and what the spillover effects would be more broadly uh, on uh, on the economy. It was um, it was a new event that uh, people hadn't experienced before at that scale, and so it was a, a lot to digest. I think a lot of, of unanticipated. Uh, impact that people were trying to, uh, or people were trying to deal with. And Citigroup was uh, in the middle of it. I mean, Citigroup was considered a very vulnerable institution. Uh, so, um, uh, I, I, you know, I remember it because uh, our friend uh, Obama was running for president and was called on to help support uh, the TARP, highly unpopular. Uh, which he did in the middle of a campaign and worked with the Bush administration to do it, but the but it was uh, the level of concern about what the impact of not stepping in at that moment That's would right. be for the country was and for the world w- was uh, tremendous and for the world and we did see the world the global economy enveloped uh, uh, in this um, and I'm just I'm, what I'm. I guess what I'm asking you is from the inside, what did it look like? What did it feel like at that moment? Was there a sense that this thing could come apart? 
Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think that there was very much a sense that we were on the verge of a, of a what could have been a cataclysmic event and that it required that kind of intervention, which was, as you said, politically very unpopular. It took a lot of courage uh, to move forward with it. It was still unpopular years later, um, but it was necessary to prevent the system from collapsing. And it led to, of course, a revision of the financial regulatory framework, which was necessary to deal with the excesses. You know, um, you and I met earlier because you there was a group of, of friends of Obama who would convene every once in a while to talk about what he was doing, what his plans were. Uh, but we, uh, and you were deeply involved in the transition uh, to the new administration. And then we, we met uh, in a different way, because I was a senior advisor to the president, and we were going through, this is in the form of confession, by the way, to the world <laughs> here. Uh, we were going through a, a situation where the enmity toward Wall Street was ferocious, uh, ferocious. The anger about what had happened and about the number of people who were losing their homes, uh, about uh, you know the crash of the market and all of that was great. And a lot of it was focused on bonuses that went to people on Wall Street. You were going to enter the administration, and I I know we've talked about this. You remember this call. I called you, and you were due uh, a substantial, I guess it would be qualified as a bonus, uh, for your work as you left. Uh, and as you point out, you weren't involved in, but it was all of a piece in the minds of people. And I had to tell you uh, that... Uh, you either had to give up the money or uh, or give up public service or join this administration. Um, I always felt guilty about that. Um, but how did you how did you receive uh, receive that? Well, um, you know, it, it came at a very uh, uh, tumultuous know, time, yes. more generally. And um, talk uh, a little about that because. Well, uh, it's a long story, but my my uh, my son had just died of uh, brain cancer two weeks before, and that had been our Jacob. How, how Jacob. old was he? He was about ten and a half. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how long an ordeal was that? About two years. About two years. So it was the you know, it was a terrible tragedy at home. A lot of tumult there, as you might imagine. Uh, of course. The tumult going on everywhere in the financial sector, in the economy, um, me leaving Citigroup uh, at the same moment and coming into the administration. A lot of things came together at one moment that was, uh, uh, I'm going to say, quite stressful, uh, to say the least. But, you know, it also helps put things in perspective. I mean, I remember very well the conversation that you and, and Ram and I had in Ram's office uh, my first day. Uh, when I reported um, for for work uh, at the White House, um, and the president had pulled me aside earlier uh, that morning to say this is a, this is a problem. Go talk to to David and uh, and Rom about this. And uh, you know, in the grand scope of things, um, uh, it's only money in in that regard. And there are people who are losing a lot more than that, as you mentioned their their homes, their their livelihoods. Um, and I had just lost something, you know, far more valuable than that. And so um, while it was a very difficult period uh, to go through and a difficult issue to work through, and I appreciate you and 
and Rahm uh, Emanuel was the chief of staff at the time uh, working with me uh, through it. Um, at the end of the day, it, 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 it simply doesn't matter on the same scale as these other issues. I, I, I raise it in part because um, we asked people to make a lot of sacrifices and we tried to impose certain standards. Um, and uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know what standards are being imposed today. Um, but, and I'm not sure those questions are being asked in part because there are questions about the president that aren't and can't be asked. So conflicts of interest, uh, are not, uh, on the top line of concerns, uh, today, but it, it should be noted that you chose to serve, uh, and it was a, it was a sacrifice and, uh, uh, I had to get that off my chest. <laughs> that uh, I was the instrument by which I, I to ask not, you to ask you to make uh, uh, make that uh, sacrifice, and you stayed for eight years, uh, in which you could have been doing other more gainful, you know, I, it, gainful things. The, as you know, it is a huge privilege. It, it is a huge privilege to serve, and whatever the sacrifice is in terms of opportunity costs or anything else, I mean, the, the only sacrifice that you really can never recover is the time with your family that you don't spend together. Yes. Um, but you know, beyond that, it's, it's such a huge privilege um, and honor. And I think, you know, it's one reason why I encourage anybody I know who has any interest under any president or any administration to go in and serve because there's nothing more, nothing more uh, valuable, nothing more self-fulfilling than that. In those early Obama, we talked about the beginning of the crisis, but Obama arrived as it was cresting. And it was a global crisis. You were double-hatted in the uh, National Security Council and on the National uh, Economic Council uh, to work with the uh, other financial authorities around the world to try and corral uh, this crisis. Um, and part of it was you, you were a Sherpa at these global meetings. What were those meetings like, those early meetings when – uh, the global economy was, uh, you know, was, was cascading out of control. Well, like there was quite a bit of, um, you know, concern, almost to the degree of panic among other countries about what we were going to do to deal with this. And as you recall, uh, the president was heading to his first summit in April of 2009, so less than three months uh, as as president. Uh, and that summit was really focused on what's going to be the international response to this crisis. It was one thing for us to do TARP domestically and the other programs and actions that we took domestically. But in order to prevent this from becoming a global depression, we needed the concerted cooperation of all of the other major economies, including mobilizing resources for the International Monetary Fund and for all the other uh, mechanisms of the international system to make sure the crisis did not spill over into a broader uh, global depression. I think that um, one of the things that don't people don't um, fully appreciate is the amount of work that goes in before those meetings. It's not as if people show up and say, hey, I got an idea. Uh, all these things are thrashed out beforehand, and then they're refined and discussed uh, in these meetings. But uh, your job was to to, to sort of set the agenda to help uh, work with these other countries to set the agenda for what would be discussed uh, at these meetings. Uh, so um, what, what kind of tools did, 
did you have at that time? Well, we, we were all we were all scrambling, and uh, the administration was just being put in place. Not everybody was been confirmed yet, uh, but Secretary Geithner at uh, at, at Treasury, uh, Larry Summers uh, at the White House. Uh, we all worked in dealing with our counterparts in these other countries to, as you say, both generate the ideas, what would be the proposal, what would be the outcome of that summit that would send a positive signal of confidence to the international economy and would show that the major economies had come together at this remarkable time to take the necessary action. And even though the president had just been inaugurated, he'd only been in office you know, a matter of weeks, everyone was looking to the U.S. for leadership. And it underscored for me the lesson that U.S. leadership is abs- and engagement is absolutely critical to getting anything done positively in the international system. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with Michael Froman. I want to follow up on that point because that's um, a concern right now. There is a different philosophy, which is that, and we heard the president, uh, President Trump, articulate this in his uh in his inaugural address, America First, um, a very much a philosophy of uh, coming home, sort of drawing a line around the country and, uh, and, and focusing on the needs of this country. And uh, in that speech and subsequently his comments about global institutions have been uh, unsettling. Um, could, could you have – could we have avoided the uh, a uh, global depression without these inst- international institutions uh, eight years ago. No, no, I don't think so, and not without the cooperation of other countries and the uh, the relationship we built with them. Look, to, to a certain degree, I think it's a bit of a false argument. I don't know of of any president or any administration that doesn't put America first. I mean, that is their job, and that is certainly what uh, President Obama did as well. The question is, how do you achieve that objective? And for so many of these issues, the U.S. acting alone is not sufficient. You can't raise the drawbridge and retreat behind a wall around the country and avoid an international financial crisis. You need the cooperation of the international institutions. You need the cooperation of the major financial centers around the world, the major trading partners, to make sure that the appropriate policies and and steps are taken to – avoid that kind of disaster. And that's what we did through the, the, the G20, uh, through the G8, with our work with Congress on getting the IMF the necessary resources, in addition to what we were doing domestically, uh, and what other every other country was doing as well to contribute to that process. Have you heard from your counterparts uh, around the world uh, since since the change of administration and what what concerns are you hearing they they call uh they call fairly frequently uh in the hopes that i have some great insight into what's going on in the new administration and i have to admit to them that uh, <laughs> uh i am I'm, I'm most of what i know i'm reading in the newspaper just as they are uh but uh, but they are concerned they want you know whatever their their conflicts with the us are us is or or, or um Whatever tensions they have with the United States, they fundamentally want U.S. engagement and U.S. leadership, and they look to us for that. And they are concerned then, and uh, that the new administration may not be as engaged 
uh, in this way as, as previous administrations, both Republican and Democratic, have been before. You spent a lot of time on this issue of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, the, the treaty that uh, – the agreement that uh, this uh, – that the Trump administration is now – uh, withdrawn from, uh, and the notion was to create a, a strategic and e- economic wedge against the economic power of the Chinese, or at least that was part of it. Obviously, opening markets and so on is the thrust of it. Um, where do the Chinese sit right now relative to this administration? Because on the one hand, people like you would argue the withdrawal of the of this agreement gives them a lot of running room in uh, the global economy and particularly in that region. Um, on the other hand, they seem to um, respond to order, to they, 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 uh, to um, understandable kind of relationships. Uh, what do you hear from them? Well, look, I think it, it, this is one of the things, the great ironies, that it's hard to be tough on China and withdraw from TPP in the same breath. You know, what we warned would happen if we didn't pursue TPP is playing out in real time. Uh, China has a regional strategy. It's got something called the One Belt, One Road Initiative and the Silk Road Fund. Uh, it's created the Asian Infrastructure Bank. It's got its own trade agreement called RCEP with 16 countries ranging from India to Japan. And with the withdrawal from TPP, they're doubling down on getting that done and implemented as soon as possible. That means we're going to be cut out of these markets. These countries will have preferential access to each other and we'll be on the outside facing high tariffs and other barriers. And the rules of this trade agreement aren't anything like TPP. There's no labor provisions or environmental protections or protection of intellectual property rights or disciplines on government-owned corporations or anything having to do with a free and open internet. Those are the things that were in TPP that made sure that the rules of the road for the region reflected our interests and our values. And by withdrawing, we've basically created this void that China is all too eager to fill and that even our closest trading partners are going to line up behind. So I think it's quite, it's going to have quite a long-term negative impact. How the new administration deals with that and how they engage with the region, I think that's what remains to be seen and whether they do it through a series of bilateral deals. Which is what they say they will do. Right. And what the standards are in those deals. You know, do they have strong labor and environmental protections like TPP? Do they create an open and free Internet like TPP? Does it protect the digital economy that's been so important to our innovation? Um, those, that's what remains to be seen. And what do you think the e- economic impacts of, uh, of this will be? Well, there's both the opportunity lost and then the actual decline. So the, 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 the economists estimate that TPP would have added $130 billion to our GDP, that two-thirds of the benefits would have gone to workers, but split more or less evenly between skilled and unskilled workers. It would have added about $350 billion of U.S. exports. And we know exports pay 18% more on average than non-export-related firms. So that's... That won't be pursued. On the other hand, what we do see is that these other countries are already moving ahead with their own agreements. So we're already losing market share in Japan, for example, to Australia that has a free trade agreement with Japan. They're selling beef into Australia. It's cutting into our cattlemen's market share. Now multiply that by... Well, thank God uh, the president's getting tough on the Australians. Well, there you go. About time someone did that. (laughs) But multiply that by 1,000 products and 12 countries. 
And you can see that we could actually be making life more difficult for our workers and our farmers. If we can't export, we can't support jobs here at home. Yeah, unless unless we strike a series of agreements that you cobble together and represent the same impact as the TPP. You know, you know what the president says that you guys were taken advantage of, that you made horrible deals and he's a better deal maker. I've heard that. I've heard that. Look, I think part of it, I, I'm not sure uh, there's a full understanding of exactly how TPP worked. Half the countries in TPP, we already had free trade agreements with. So we didn't give them anything. They didn't get any more market access to the United States. But we still got them to raise their labor and environmental standards and raise their intellectual property rights protections and raise their standards across the board because through TPP, they were able to get access to markets like Japan riding on our coattails. If you bilateralize everything, what's in the interest of these countries who already have access to our market to raise their standards? What uh, Another argument uh, against the TPP was the surrender of sort of sovereignty, that there'd be, um, there'd be institutions that uh, beyond our borders that would have impact on American industry and, and American businesses. Was that not a legitimate concern? I think it's I think it's a bit of a red herring. Um, if anything, most people who've looked at TPP, including from these other countries, have been worried that it's been the U.S. that has exported its rules and regulations to other countries. Not that we've given up our sovereignty, but that we've helped spread the rules that we think are appropriate for the international system to other countries as well. You know, the uh, the one of the issues that's been criticized in trade agreements. Um, quite loudly is the investor state dispute settlement. Mm-hmm. This is the neutral international arbitration. It's so Senator Warren's concern, um, among others, among others, and you know this is a, a provision that is in 3,200 agreements around the world, including 50 that the U.S. already has. So this is nothing new. In fact, through TPP, what we've done is we've tightened up the standards, made it absolutely clear that governments can regulate in their interest that. Companies can't sue because they were disappointed in their profits, or they can't sue because the government changed regulations on them. So we've, we've raised the standards. We've closed loopholes. We've made it much more transparent. In the absence of TPP, it's the old rules that apply. Those old, old rules don't go away. So the 3,200 agreements that are out there among countries where people can use investor state dispute settlement, those are still in existence today. It's just that they have a lower standard. It's, they're they're worse from the perspective of the critics of ISTS than what we did in, in TPP. You mentioned when we were chatting earlier, the other difficulty with bilateral agreements is you have to pass them serially. And uh, so you have not one debate in Congress, but uh, many debates. Uh, it's a laborious process. It is, and it's politically costly. And I don't, knowing how difficult trade agreements and trade legislation is to pass, I don't know many members of Congress who would relish the idea of having 11 votes rather than one vote in order to have free trade with all these countries. So um, I, I think from a political perspective, it's so you don't it's really see a series of bilateral agreements coming uh, across and being, being uh, ratified by Congress. Uh, in the next four years, or eight we'll years. see. We'll see. The Trump administration has talked about renegotiating NAFTA, doing a bilateral with the UK uh, as part of its Brexit, and uh, potentially doing a bilateral. Which you would have done it as well. Yeah, I think. Look, I, the president, President Obama, made clear that TTIP, which was our agreement with you, the right. European Union, 
was our priority, but certainly the UK is a, you know, we have a special relationship with them. A quarter of all of our exports to Europe go to the UK. And so when the UK is out of the EU, um, I imagine uh, whatever administration is in office uh, would want to make sure that we have a close trade relationship with them as well. You said earlier that uh, countries, even if they had differences with the U.S., look to the U.S. Uh, to to lead. There may be one exception to that rule, which is Russia. Hmm. Uh, and w- what does the um, potential dissolution of the European Union, if that's what happens and countries start withdrawing from it, uh, the absence of uh, of an agreement, uh, a Europe wide agreement with the U.S., the one that you were working on. What uh, what does that mean strategically in that region? Well, I think it does have important strategic implications. First, I, I think any trade agreement needs to be justified on the economics. It's got to be good for jobs, wages here in the United States. But these also have big strategic implications. And at a time when uh, uh, Russia has been active on the periphery of Europe when you've got uh, the involvement in eastern Ukraine, when you have meddling in the affairs of Western Europe, having – Not just Western Europe, my friend. Yes, indeed. Having a transatlantic relationship, a strong transatlantic relationship, I think has strategic importance as well. There were issues that we were discussing in TTIP that would have enhanced the energy security of Europe so they'd be less dependent potentially on Russia – for their energy uh, uh, resources. You know, those are all part and parcel of, of what trade agreements can contribute beyond the pure economics, having a political and strategic importance as well. Let me ask you to step outside uh, the, your specific portfolio. There are a couple of elections this year in Europe, one in France and one in Germany. In Germany, Angela Merkel, who has been very central to a lot of your work and very central to um, the, the strategic uh, uh, the strategic situation in Europe, she's powerful uh, figure as the German Chancellor. She's up for re-election, and in France, you have a presidential election uh, in which the National Front candidate Marine Le Pen uh, now appears to be destined to be one of the two finalists. Um, what? Uh, what is what are the implications of that strategically for the United States? Well, look, I think these are critical. When you look at Europe and you see slow and uneven growth, you see the rise of right wing populism, as you've seen, as you've, you've mentioned, France and 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 Germany, but you also have uh, the Netherlands and several other countries where you've seen the rise of right wing populism. You've seen the distrust of institutions and the tensions with uh, the whole European integration project. It's paralyzed Europe. It really has made it very difficult for Europe to play a more significant role, both in terms of addressing its own problems, but also a role in the world. And that that's bad for us. We want a strong Europe. We want to have a strong partner across the Atlantic who uh, we may not always agree on everything, but who whose values we broadly share and who we can work with to make sure that positive things are going on elsewhere, not only economically, but whether it's around climate change or whether it's around uh, political issues, strategic issues, security issues. So this is not good for the United States to see weakness, paralysis, and dissolution in in Europe. And on the other hand, I think uh, Russia is enjoying seeing these dynamics at work and is taking advantage of them. So um, we have a lot at stake in how how these issues get worked out over the next but year the, or two. 
we should acknowledge that right-wing populism and nationalism isn't uh, simply a, a, a movement astride Europe. I mean, that was a lot of what propelled uh, Donald Trump to the presidency. Uh, what is your level of concern about the future of liberal democracies? <laughs> well, it's it's uh, it's significant uh, uh, the level of concern, and I think it goes to what we're seeing both in Europe and in the United States. I think we're seeing certain institutions tested, uh, certain legal regimes tested to see just how strong they are. Certain things I think we've taken for granted, we're learning have been more a matter of custom than of law and of strong institutions. And that's going to, I think, require us to rethink things um, as we as we come out of this. You know, there are real issues. The, the anger that we saw here in the United States in this election, I think, reflects real economic anxiety yeah. about wage stagnation, about widening income inequality. It's much easier to blame a foreigner for problems, whether it's an immigrant or whether well, it's a foreign Well, the overlay of the migration issue in Europe, immigration issue here, exactly. terrorism. There are a lot of stresses on the system. That's right. And as you mentioned, Chancellor Merkel, I think, has been very much up front in trying to uh, defend and preserve the so-called liberal democratic order in, in the context of these Yeah, stresses. I think her election is going to be um, a real harbinger uh, in the next year. Uh, obviously, France can be important as well. And what's next for you? Uh, take some time and uh, process the experience uh, uh, that, that uh, of the last eight years uh, and then think through what to do next. Spend a lot of time with my family, catch up with my kids, and, uh, and think about how I want to contribute next. And, well, and and you see yourself in some form of of in the public sphere. I'm at the Don't Institute know. of Politics, so we're yeah. about the business of encouraging <laughs> that. And you've I been think, you've given a lot of your life to this, but uh, I, I think uh, I think it's hard to step away from these issues of public importance, and so in some form or another, I imagine I'll stay involved. Well, Mike Froman, thank you for your friendship. Thank you for being at the Institute of Politics and for being it's a pleasure. Today. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Thank you.